Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, just this very morning on my drive here to Southridge, I forget what time it was, probably 7.15 or maybe a little bit earlier, somewhere around there, the sun was just beginning to rise, and I came via Sydney Road, which is a road right out over here, and uh, literally stopped, backed up, pulled off to the side of the road and took this picture. And you can see just a ribbon of fog and cloud that sort of hides or differentiates or separates sort of the little taller hill range above it and kind of the meadow beneath it. And there's this ribbon of cloud that, that shields one from the other. There's another picture facing the other way. This is facing east. You can see the sun coming up just through the branches of that tree. Just this beautiful scene. Again, you see another ribbon of fog across the, the hills separating the one from the other. It actually reminded me of what we're studying in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, the veil is lifted and we're able to see the dynamic interaction between heaven and earth. These things are often hidden from us. But in Revelation, the veil is lifted and we're able to get just a slice of a glimpse, just a small picture of the dynamic involved between God's movement and the forces of holiness and righteousness in our world and the forces of evil and darkness. G.K. Chesterton said this, in the upper world, hell once rebelled against heaven. In other words, in the upper world, Satan once upon a time rebelled against God. He led a revolt against the holy God. In the upper world, hell once rebelled against heaven. But in this world, heaven is rebelling against hell. In this world, heaven is rebelling against hell. And so we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because the dynamic that we see unfolding in Revelation where the veil is lifted, the dynamic that surrounds us is that God's righteous rule and his reign is invading earth. Heaven is invading hell. C.S. Lewis says, enemy occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. When Jesus came to earth, he came as the rightful king. He will come again and establish his rule and reign. Enemy occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. And so Revelation is the story of the interactions, the battle of the rightful king landing. It's the battle of between this world as it rebels against hell. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, you are in the crossfire of the most dramatic rescue operation you can possibly conceive. That's the story in which you live. You are caught in the crossfire of the most dramatic rescue operation you can possibly conceive. The God of heaven has chosen not to simply let this world dissolve into wickedness, 
but instead to redeem, to restore people and to bring about a new creation. And Revelation is the story of that happening. I'm going to ask Fajer to come, and she is going to read Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Uh, these are Jesus' words directed directly to the church of Smyrna. Uh, before she reads, there's going to be a little map up on the screen. Uh, remember, each of these churches had a specific location in the ancient world. In Asia Minor, we looked at the town of Ephesus, the letter to Ephesus a couple of weeks ago. This one is to Smyrna, again, a real-life place in the ancient world in Asia Minor. As we have done, why don't we stand as God's word is read. The reason that we do that is it's kind of symbolic of us presenting ourselves before God. Uh, he beckons us and we present ourselves before him. He instructs us, his spirit instructs us. And so we stand as his word is read to present ourselves before him as his word is read. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who have ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcome will not be hurt at all by the second death. Amen. Thank you, Fajer, and you can be seated. Uh, just a little kind of survey of where we're going this morning. Uh, I mentioned a couple times, man, Revelation 1 was so incredibly dense. I could spend literally a week there, probably in every verse. And so forgive me for going back into it a little bit. Uh, the Church of Smyrna is a fairly short section of verses. And so I just want to provide some time to take a little bit of a little bit more background from Revelation chapter one, and also provide some just some, some some helpful perspectives on how we interpret the book of Revelation. Um, Earlier on, John says this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. We'll talk about this in a second. John to the seven churches of the province of Asia, and then he goes on. A couple things about reading Revelation and understanding it that are very helpful. Uh, the first one, I forget where I heard this. It's not mine. It's somebody else's. But one of, the, one of the principles that you want to keep in mind as you read Revelation is this. Um, go big and go old. Go big and go old. Lots of times, Revelation is mistakenly read because people don't read big and they don't read old. What we mean by that is, is first big. Uh, Revelation covers the big perspective of God's truth. All the way in Genesis 1, God creates. At the end of Revelation, there's a new creation that's brought about. Go big when you read Revelation. This morning, we're going to reference the book of Zechariah. We've already referenced the book of Daniel a little bit. So go big, but also go old. Again, many of these references harken back to the Old Testament. And so you can't just read Revelation and you know, decide what you want in sort of modern-day metaphors or modern-day symbols. You have to go old. 
And so first principle, when you read Revelation, go big and go old, and you're going to find that theme as we go throughout the whole book. Second one is, is don't do this. And this one is kind of one that I found helpful, so it's not as sharp and clear as this, but it's anyway, you can deal with it. Um, don't go wooden. Don't go wooden. And don't go whimsical. Now, what do I mean by that? We said that John or Revelation is a lot about symbolism and metaphors. In fact, first couple of first verse of Revelation, John is instructed to write what, what he sees, what he's going to be shown. The word there is signify. And so when we see that word signify, there's a lot of metaphors. There's a lot of symbols in the book of Revelation. But here's the deal. Don't simply go wooden because a lot of it isn't intended to necessarily be taken literally. It doesn't mean it's less real. It just means we're not to woodenly we're not to woodenly understand it. But the flip side is you can't simply say, oh, it means this because that's what I want it to mean. This is a nice thing. It feels good. So it's neither wooden. It's not all literal because the idea is signifying in metaphors, but it, you certainly can't just be whimsical either. Well, this is kind of what I want it to mean, and here's a cool idea, here's a modern idea, here's something that's fascinating. No, no, it's, it's not just interesting or whimsical. It's got to be tied to something. So go big, go old, don't go wooden, and don't go whimsical. Those are kind of kind of a thread of, of how we approach the book of Revelation. Again, we'll just kind of dive into that for a little bit of a test case, uh, going back to Revelation 1 and connecting it to the church of Smyrna. Again, in, John, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, uh, Jesus says to John, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. We already said that the seven churches are actual literal churches in ancient Asia Minor. And we showed you a map of that already. This one is to the church of Smyrna. But it's interesting that there are seven, and one of the things that you find throughout the book of Revelation is the significance of numbers. Again, we don't go wooden, we don't go whimsical, but numbers have significance in the book of Revelation. Numbers like four, seven, 12 in particular have lots of significance. What's the significance of number seven? Again, we don't want to go wooden. We don't want to go whimsical, but in saying that there are seven churches, John is trying to establish something. Uh, the number seven, most of us know in the scripture, is the idea of completeness. Where does that come from? We don't just make that up. That comes from somewhere. Where does that come from? Well, the idea of completeness is how long did it take God to create everything that we see, both the earth, above the earth, beneath the earth? How long did it take God to do that? Seven days, right? So seven stands for the completeness of the totality of God's creation. And so when John says there are seven churches, yes, there's seven literal churches, but we're probably not to take that just woodenly, like, well, it's only to them. But in saying that there are seven, John is also saying this has application to all of the people of God. Yes, there's seven literal churches, but it can also be expanded to all of God's people, not just them, but probably for today as well, for all time, the completeness of who God is calling to himself. Don't go wooden, 
don't go whimsical. The number seven relates to the totality of God's creation, the completion of it. We find not only seven days of creation in the Gospels, we're told to forgive seven times 70 or seven times seven. Uh, This is fascinating as well. Remember, we said the lampstands that the churches are represented by in the book of Revelation. Each of the lampstands is a church. The lampstand was actually came from the tabernacle. We mentioned this a number of weeks ago. And the tabernacle was a representation of God's presence on earth. And inside the tabernacle, that building, that temple, was, was a singular lampstand. A picture will be up here on the screens. And notice how many lamps, if you look at Exodus, how many lamps are instructed to be on the lampstand? There's seven, right? Interestingly enough, there's almond leaves and almond blossoms on there, kind of connecting that directly to God's presence in creation. That's kind of another topic. We can go there someday. But, but it's fascinating that in the tabernacle, there was a single lampstand with seven lamps. But John is writing to seven churches, each one of them being a lampstand. There was only one lampstand with seven lamps. Now you've got seven lampstands. And so there's a sense of the the magnification, the breadth of God's presence. In fact, you can look at it this way. In one sense, this represents the breadth and depth of God's presence across all of his created earth. God's presence is to be known throughout the earth by the lampstands, by his people, so that his presence is known. How, what does Revelation focus on? Tribes, nations, and languages across the completeness of God's creation. Tribes, nations, and languages stand for the completion of God's creation. And so the lampstands have everything to do with the magnification of God's presence, as well as his presence being made known across the earth. That's why we at Southridge, exactly why we actually contribute to things like Samaritan's Purse or other relief organizations. It's why physical needs matter to us. It's why loving other people in Jesus' name matters. It's why we don't simply gather in our holy spiritual huddle and simply stay to ourselves. It's precisely because churches are to be lampstands that cast the light of God's presence over all the earth. It's exactly why we have ministry partners in Italy and Japan and Zimbabwe and many other places. Because we want to have that same expansiveness that you see exactly in the book of Revelation. Notice, so there's seven lampstands. We had to keep flying here because I love this stuff. Um, Next, he says this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. Grace and peace to you from him who was, from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Now, it's kind of weird there too, isn't it? Like seven spirits. What's that doing there? Well, most likely, that refers to the Holy Spirit, because here's why. Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. That seems to be speaking of God the Father, his rulership over the whole earth. Then you come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. So you have Father, Holy Spirit, And the Son, that's why it seems like the best interpretation of the seven spirits before his throne is reference to the Holy Spirit. Again, we don't want to take that woodenly. We don't want to take it whimsically. 
It's not as if there are seven different Holy Spirits, but when he says seven spirits before God's throne, each one of them is connected to each of the seven churches. There's seven churches, and there's a sevenfold spirit of God, so that the fullness of God's presence through his spirit is concentrated in each and every church. It's amazing what John is doing. John is saying, look, there is not a church on planet Earth that does not have the full dose of the presence of God's Holy Spirit. How encouraging is that? John doesn't say there's seven churches and we'll have a twofold presence of the Holy Spirit. He says there's seven churches and the sevenfold spirit or the seven spirits before. In other words, he, he makes it intentional that the fullness of God's Holy Spirit is connected to every single church. Wherever you go on this globe, God's presence is there. You know, friends, there's lots of things that beg for our attention in this world. But as John opens the book of Revelation, he refers to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He talks about the Trinity. He talks about the work of God throughout the world. And friends, the work of the Trinitarian God through his people is the most profound reality in our world. What's most real in our world is not materialism. What's most real in our world is not evil. What's most real in our world is not self-accomplishment and professional successfulness. What's most important is not accumulating as much as possible. What's most important is not maximizing pleasure and minimizing discomfort. The primary reality is not accolades or affirmation. What's most real is not economics and enterprise. What's most important is not assertiveness and aggressiveness. What's most important is not money and marketing. The primary reality is not body figures and fashion. The primary reality is not church budgets and church buildings, as much as they might be helpful. What's most important is not self-autonomy, self-discovery, and self-promotion. What matters most is not political victory, personal success, or professional position. The most important, most real, primary reality of our world is God's divine Trinitarian activity and his work among his redeemed people. That's what's most important in our world. That's what makes our world go round. And Jesus is saying this specifically to the churches in Revelation precisely because he knows that what could seem most real for them is the suffering that's in front of them, the power of the Roman government. The, the power of the Roman government was incredibly vast. That had to be, from their perspective, the most real reality in the world. And Jesus is saying, don't make that mistake. The most real reality in our world is not evil, it's not injustice, it's not power, it's not position, it's not financial success, it's not affirmation, it's none of those things. The primary dynamic of our world is the activity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through his people. Let that encourage you. Let that encourage you. Churches are messy. I get it. We're one of them, and it's messy. But church, the people of God, are not peripheral to God's focus. Instead, they actually represent his presence among all of his creation and all of humanity. Just one other little quick connection here I want to make. 
and we'll try to fly and move on. But this stuff is exciting to me, and I think it just makes Revelation so incredibly powerful. Uh, actually, two more things. Um, later on, notice, well, in verse 16, when John sees this, this uh, vision of Jesus, it says that in his right hand, in the right hand of Jesus, he held seven stars. Later on in verse 20, it says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Most likely what that's referencing, again, is a direct supernatural spiritual connection between the churches and the hand of God. That the stars, the seven stars that Jesus holds in his hands are the seven angels of the seven churches. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, I am not disconnected from what's happening with my people on planet Earth. As we've already learned, the churches in ancient Asia Minor were suffering greatly. They were enduring persecution. They were seeing their family, some family members get fed to the lions and slaughtered. Some of them were going through intense poverty. And Jesus is saying, look, you are not peripheral to me. I'm holding the seven stars in my hand. And each star is an angel that is a direct connection assigned to the seven churches. I know what's happening. Listen, friends, God is not blind. What's happening among his people is directly in his focus. Let that encourage you. Let that strengthen you that this is not peripheral to who God is. One last thing. A little bit of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah is this prophet who has this vision. Uh, The people had been exiled. They're back in the land. And God is giving Zacharias this vision to encourage them to build the temple, which again was his presence on earth, represented that. Uh, Zechariah has this vision, verses 2 and 3 in Zechariah 4. I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand. Interesting, isn't it? Solid gold lampstand. This is again in Zechariah with the bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. We could dive into that, but you can sense the connection both back to Exodus where we already looked, Zechariah, and now also to Revelation. Later on, a couple verses down, verse six, this is what God says to Zechariah about Zerubbabel, who's supposed to be building the temple that is going to be the presence of God on earth. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not, listen to this, not by might nor by power. Some of you might know what connects, what comes next, but by my, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. See how God's spirit, it's there in creation, it hovers over the waters. God's spirit is there when Zechariah has this vision. In other words, I want you to rebuild the temple. But for it to reflect my presence, it can't be done without my spirit. My Holy Spirit is essential for the rebuilding of the temple as the people of Israel come back into the land. Revelation chapter 1 and 2. Paul earlier on tells us who's the temple of God? We are. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the temple of God. What does... John connect, what does Jesus connect to the churches? The presence of the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold presence of the Holy Spirit for the seven churches. Friends, listen, there's nothing that Jesus is asking the churches to do that can be done without the presence of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing that Southridge Community Church can do without the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
We can make a lot of noise. We can do a lot of activity. But unless we are dependent on God's Holy Spirit, it will not be fruitful. If we are dependent on God's Holy Spirit, the most menial, mundane, seemingly insignificant task that we do is filled and jam-packed with spiritual reality and meaning. Maybe some of you already served in SR Kids this morning. Maybe some of you served in SR Students. Maybe some of you greeted. Maybe some of you mowed the lawn, helped to clean the building. Maybe some of you led a group, and your service is seen by no one. Maybe some of you helped some babies, changed some diapers. Listen, friends. Because the most profound reality of our world is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, no matter what you do, however meaningless, insignificant, unseen, whatever it is, no matter what you do, if filled with the power of God's Holy Spirit contributes to his presence on earth. Some of you are making meals for those who are sick or lost loved ones. That's filled and packed with the presence of God's Holy Spirit. That's the reality of the church. That's how John starts off in Revelation chapter 1. So every church that we see in Revelation 2 and 3, it's got to be connected to the power of God. There's a holy, God, the presence of God's Holy Spirit is fully present with every one of the churches. There's the sevenfold Spirit of God and the seven churches. And he's there for his presence to be known on earth. Just a couple of things. Jump now into the church of Smyrna. Because without God's Holy Spirit, they can't do what God is asking them to do, what Jesus is asking them to do. Verse 9, I know your afflictions. By the way, that's once again the word tribulation. And we saw that early in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, when John says, I, John, your brother and companion, and the suffering, the tribulation. And so often our perspective is like tribulation, hardship, difficulty, difficult things don't belong in the Christian life. Jesus says, I know your suffering, I know your tribulation, and your poverty. And then he says this, but you are rich, yet you are rich. In other words, it's going to take the power of God's Holy Spirit for the people of Smyrna who are experiencing tribulation, hardship, who are experiencing poverty. Maybe many literal poverty have lost their jobs because of the Roman government. And Jesus is saying, No matter what your circumstance, you are rich. Listen, friends, I don't know what circumstance you're facing this morning. Probably none of us are facing the kind of hardship and affliction and tribulation that the people in Smyrna were. But we're facing something. And there's something right now that is competing for your attention, for you to see it, is to be the defining reality of your life. Maybe it's a loss. Maybe it's a financial challenge. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's just some personal feelings that you have. But I can tell you right now, for every single one of us here, there is something at this very second that is beckoning you to see it as a defining reality of your life. It wants the most attention. This is who you are. 
It's all encompassing. And Jesus is saying, time out. It's not the ultimate reality. You can experience afflictions and poverty, and yet you are rich. You belong to God. You're his son. You're his daughter. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God that's in the presence of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I mentioned, I think, a couple weeks ago, by the time John was writing this letter, there were 40 major temples where Caesar was worshipped as God, including one in each of the cities of the seven churches addressed in Revelation 2 and 3. Caesar was known as Lord, Savior of the world, Son of God. Smyrna had an excellent harbor. It was prosperous, had a flourishing trade, and it was a beautiful city. In AD 26, Smyrna successfully competed against 11 other cities to be the host city for a new temple to deify the emperor Tiberius. As a result, it became a center of the imperial cult or the worship of the emperor. The emperor was worshipped. And so the moment that Christians, followers of Jesus, did not worship the emperor, they were subjected to poverty. They were subjected to harsh circumstances. Next he says, and I don't like this quite honestly, he says, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. You know what I want that to read? I want that to read, don't be afraid because I'm going to take your suffering away. Who, who votes with me on that? Right, right. Like who wants to read, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer? Jesus, if the fullness of your spirit is with the church, isn't your job to say, don't be afraid, I'm going to halt suffering? Don't be afraid your suffering's going to end? Instead, he says, don't be afraid because you're going to suffer. In other words, suffering can't fool us into diluting the full presence of God with us. The presence of God is fully with them through his Holy Spirit, and yet they're suffering. By the way, I noticed I skipped over some stuff, so I want to jump back there. Um, I mentioned I know, you, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Most likely what's happening there is that the Roman government gave an exception to the Jewish people because it was an ancient religion. Uh, they gave them an exception to not worship Caesar. But Rome would not tolerate new religions. They would only tolerate ancient religions. And so precisely because it was an ancient religion, the Jews were actually exempted from emperor worship. Most likely what was happening is some Jewish people were saying, look, Followers of Jesus are not part of us. They're a new religion. They're a new group of people. Uh, the name Satan, the etymology of it, the background of that name has the idea of slander, accuser, that kind of dynamic. And so most likely there were people saying, hey, Roman government, you got to come down hard on the followers of Jesus because they don't belong to us. They're new. Uh, they're modern they should not get the exception that we get to not worship Caesar, to not worship the emperor. Uh, come down hard on them. It's most likely what's happening there. Verse 10. I tell you, the devil put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Just a little thought on that. Again, we'll try to go big. We'll try to go old. We'll try not to go wooden. We'll try not to go uh, whimsical. Uh, most likely what he's referring to there is all the way back in the book of Daniel. 
Remember when Daniel and his three friends were taken into Babylon out of Israel? They were taken into Babylon, and they refused to eat the food that King Nebuchadnezzar put in front of them. Most likely, it had some things to do with worship of idols and some other aspects, but they refused to do that. And in Daniel chapter 1, I believe it is, Daniel chapter 1 tells us that they refused to do that for a period of how many days? Ten. Ten days. And so... Jesus seems to be borrowing that, that idea of 10 days, applies it to Samaria. Now, here's the, here's the deal. Uh, does that mean it's exactly 10 days? Uh, I don't know. Could be. It was a literal 10 days in Daniel's time. If I had to sort of maybe make a guess, I'm sort of guessing that that number 10 is being used not really in a wooden way, like, hey, you're only going to be in prison, you're only going to suffer for 10 days, and that's over, because we know the persecution lasted longer than that. So my sense is when he's using the word 10, he's referencing Daniel and his three friends. Number one, hey, it's a defined season of time. This isn't going to be for a 1,000 years or a 100 years. It's for 10 days. It's, it's a defined season of time that's going to be limited by my sovereignty. And number two is... Daniel and his three friends victoriously navigated through it, and you will too. Daniel and his three friends, because of their faith in me, their trust in me, got to the other side of the testing for 10 days. And through your faith and trust in Jesus, you will too. Again, just some ideas of of how that word or how that number 10 functions there. I know your afflictions, your tribulations, your poverty and your tribulation, yet you are very rich. How do we, how are the people supposed to persevere? They can only do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. They can't overcome, they can't be victorious without the presence of God's Spirit. He goes on to say, I tell you, the devil will put some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer persecution for 10 days. And then he mentions uh, further, be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. We know that wreaths of victor in those days were made out of olive branches, pine branches, sometimes laurel branches, sometimes celery leaves. But this crown would be different. It would be permanent, more permanent than celery, more permanent than olive branches, more permanent than laurel. Verse, um, he goes down further. Uh, I lost my place here. Um, that you are rich. He, he mentions whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. What the spirits, this is verse 11, says to the churches, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. What does he mean by the second death? The first death is when we experience death in this life. Our physical lives pass away. The second death in Revelation, we'll dive into this later, the second death is about eternal separation from God. And so he says, you may suffer to the point of experiencing physical death. You may lose your life, but you will not experience the second death. You will never experience eternal separation from me because you belong to me as my sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask Sam to come up and he's going to 
help lead us into communion. Jesus says to these churches, there's going to be a reality that's beckoning you to make it the number one reality. Your poverty, your affliction, your suffering, your tribulation, your hardship. And I can tell you for every person who's seated here, for every person who's online, there is some kind of reality in your life right now that wants to become the defining reality of your life. It wants to say, this is who you are. This is your identity. And the message of Revelation and of Jesus to the church of Smyrna is, in spite of your affliction, in spite of your poverty, yet you are rich. You belong to the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's your number one reality. That's your identity. That's who you are. In fact, Jesus was so clear about that. He said, I'm going to give you a mechanism to remember that. And it's going to be real. It's going to be physical. Every time you gather together and you take a piece of bread or a wafer, it represents my broken body. You drink a cup of juice or wine and it represents my blood. And when you eat that wafer and when you drink that wine or that juice, it reminds you that the ultimate reality of our world is not what's beckoning for your attention. It's not what seems most apparent. Instead, the ultimate reality of our world is a God of heaven who stepped down to this earth in the person of Jesus and gave his life so that we would not experience the second death. So that as we place our faith, our trust in him, we are his sons and daughters. And if there's anything we can be guaranteed of, it's this. We cannot be guaranteed that suffering will end in this life. We cannot be guaranteed an easy path. What we can be guaranteed is you will not see the second death. You will never be separated from the eternal presence of God. And so in a couple minutes, I'm going to invite you to take a wafer and a cup of juice. And when we do, we are declaring that the number one defining reality of the story of, your, of our world and the story of your life is that Jesus came to pay for sin, to take the curse of evil and wickedness on himself, so that through faith in him, you don't experience the second death. You belong to him. 
I don't know what reality that needs to contradict in your life this morning. I'm going to ask you as you, I'll invite you in a second, but when you get up to take the elements, when you make that walk, I want you to think about that. What reality is begging for your attention? What reality is seeking to define you? And I want you to say, through faith and through the power of the Holy Spirit, that is not my reality. Instead, the most important thing about me, the most important reality that could be said about my life is that I belong to the Father in heaven. I will never experience the second death, eternal separation from God. Even though I am in affliction and poverty, I am rich in Christ. It's not important for you to be a member of Southridge to participate in this. What I do ask is that it be an expression of your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior. If you've never made that decision, maybe walking to one of these stations is the time to do that. I would invite you to. So I'm going to invite you to stand, balcony, floor. If you're at home, you can participate with us. Go to one of the stations, aisles up front, corner to the balcony. Take a wafer, cup of juice back to your seat. And remember, take a walk of defiance against what is begging for your attention. And this broken wafer, the juice, the body and blood of Jesus is the most defining reality of your life. As you're holding the wafer and cup of juice, I just want to read two different paragraphs that I put together and I kind of talk about the starkness of what it means to be, have life in Christ and what it means to not have life in Christ. I want to say this with humility with love and with grace. But friends, it's pretty stark. I'm going to be fully honest. If you don't have Christ, you're completely lost, completely hopeless, 
completely under God's judgment, completely impoverished, completely devoid of lasting peace and joy, completely under the sentence of eternal death. You're a prisoner to your own appetites. You're a slave to sin and wickedness. You are completely in darkness, completely destitute, completely blind, completely condemned, completely and eternally separated from God, and completely assigned to eternal destruction. But you're invited to receive life in Christ. If you belong to Christ, you have eternal life. All things are yours in Christ Jesus. You have eternal joy and peace. You are loved with an everlasting love. You are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You have been redeemed from sin's bondage. You have been purchased with the precious blood of Jesus. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. You are a member of God's household. You are a citizen of heaven. You have Christ's righteousness. You will dwell with God forever. You will have a blessed and eternal life in the new heaven and new earth. You have eternal joy and peace in Christ. It's not by our own efforts that we move from place of darkness to a place of light, place of condemnation to a place of being sons and daughters of God. It's through the ultimate reality of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. Let's eat and drink the elements together. We're going to close by singing the doxology. References, Revelation 1, 4, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So let's stand and sing as we sing about the Trinity, the most real thing that this world can ever imagine.
Revelation 1. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And everyone who agreed said... Our prayer team is down here to the right. We'd love to pray for you. May grace and peace be with you. God bless.